The sermon text for today is from Mark 16, 1 to 8, which you can find in page 498. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll, roll away the stone from us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, one more time. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, hallelujah. Amen. That is good news. Today we are here to celebrate the biggest moment in the history of the world. And I don't think you can argue that. This is the biggest moment in the history of the world. No other event has ever split world history into two halves. No other event has ever changed more people's lives. And no other event has ever been more contested or more debated throughout history. This debate over the resurrection, it started thousands of years ago. You can read about it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 26, when the Apostle Paul is imprisoned, he has a chance to give his testimony. And here's how he says it. He's talking to Festus, who is the governor. He's talking to Agrippa, who is the king. And here's what he says. He says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul responded. He said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. That's how the debate started. And that is how it has continued. For generations and generations and generations. And for good reason. If the resurrection happened, if it all went down the way the scriptures insist that it did, then that means everything about the world is forever changed. Everything is different. And if it didn't happen, well, that means that there is no hope for any of us. 
No hope but death. And it means exactly what Festus said. It means that we as Christians, we are out of our minds. So we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to think about this this morning. We need to know not only did it happen, but if it happened, what does it mean? And, and what are we supposed to do about it? And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I just want to ask those three simple questions about the resurrection. Can we believe it? What does it mean? And what are we supposed to do about it? Can we believe it? What does it mean? And what are we supposed to do about it? Well, can we believe it? Okay, what we just read, what Jennifer wonderfully read for us, uh, are the last few verses of the Gospel of Mark. And we have been reading Mark for two winters, January up to Easter, for the last two years. This is the big finish. This is the, the big finale. Mark's been trying to tell us about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And now, in the last lines, we see this story. That three days after Jesus was brutally murdered, after he was killed on the cross, a group of women go and they buy spices, and they head to the tomb with the intention of caring for Jesus' decaying corpse. But instead, they find a young man dressed in white. They find an angel who delivers this message. Verse 7, he says, He has risen. He is not here. To say that was a surprise is the greatest understatement in the world. There have been some big surprises in history. We've had some big surprises recently, right? Uh, I don't know if anyone has been paying attention to the NCAA tournament. It's wrapping up right now. But a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, a 16 seed beat the number one seed. The, uh, i got to read their names. I can't even remember. Who, what are they called? The University of Maryland Baltimore County Retrievers beat UVA. They beat the number one team in the country who had barely lost. And that was pretty shocking. That was a big surprise. 16 seeds were 0 and 135 in the NCAA tournament. But that kind of upset... At least it was conceivable. At least there is a place in our brain for that kind of information. It had never happened before, but you could imagine that maybe someday it would. But no one saw this coming. He has risen. He is not here. This is the greatest upset in all of creation. Human beings versus death. The, the record is way worse than O and 135. <laughs> right? It's, it's O and billions upon billions. But at the center of our faith, at the center of Christianity is the claim that the score is actually one in billions upon billions. So how do you deal with that? How can we possibly by that something so unlikely, so impossible, actually took place. How could a smart person like you believe that somebody rose from the dead? Well, I'm going to quickly here at the beginning give you just three quick reasons why I think you should. First of all, let's start with the second half of that statement. It says, he is risen, he is not here. 
He is not here. Now, no matter how skeptical you might be here in this room this morning, you have to admit that history historians have pretty much reached a consensus on this one fact. Jesus was not there. The empty tomb of Jesus is about as sure of a fact in history as you will ever find. It is multiply attested by people on both sides. And remember, in the early days of Christianity, there was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of opposition to Jesus. There was a lot of opposition to the early church and to his early followers. And there was a lot of momentum. One surefire way to kill that momentum would have been to produce the body of Jesus. But of course they didn't. They couldn't. The tomb was empty. He was not there. Another reason that you should at least consider this is I, I want you to, to recognize that the documents that we have are plausible. And the documents that we have are reliable. These gospel accounts that we read from are not fake histories. There are lots of fake histories that exist in the world. Things that are, 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 are fraudulent. They're pretending to be true, but they're not. There are even some fake Christian histories in the world. You may be aware of them. I don't know. There's a book called The Golden Legend. Has anybody ever heard of that? I'll tell you about it later. Actually, you know what, let me tell you about it now. The Golden Legend. It's this thing that in the Middle Ages uh, were, were present in almost every Christian community. It's stories of the different lives of these early Christian heroes, these different saints, and I swear it reads like Marvel Comics. The, the people are, are, do incredible, amazing things, and they never do anything wrong. It's a fake history. That is not what the Gospels are like. The Gospels, you know, you know, fake histories, they, they tend to show their heroes in the best possible light. They show them so that you can predict what they're going to end up being. But not the Gospels. In the Gospels, the heroes, the leaders of the church, are idiots. They're traitors. They're failures. They're not heroes. They come off looking miserable. Why would you fake that? And in that same vein, if we look in our passage today, look at these first witnesses to the resurrection. Now, if you were going to make this story up, who would you choose to be the first witnesses to this most important event? Well, you would pick somebody important, right? Somebody trustworthy, somebody reliable. You'd pick, you know who you'd pick? You'd pick Tom Hanks. No, I don't really know. I googled who's the most reliable person in, in the United States, and Google tells me it's Tom Hanks. I can't believe that. That seems absurd to me. How would Tom Hanks... Anyway, we probably wouldn't really pick Tom Hanks. We'd pick somebody, though, that we could trust. We'd pick maybe a scientist, some kind of scholar, somebody whose word would mean something. But, but that is not who they picked. The first witnesses of the resurrection... Are this, is this group of women. And you probably know that historically, especially in ancient times, uh, in the ancient world, women weren't, weren't viewed highly. Their testimony wasn't considered valid in court. 
Now, of course, that's absurd. Obviously, God doesn't share those feelings. But if you're going to make up the story, a group of women isn't who you pick. You wouldn't pick a group of people whose testimony doesn't hold up in court. But the reason women are the first recorded witnesses of the resurrection is because they were the first witnesses of the resurrection. <laughs> it's how it happened. They, the gospel writers couldn't write it any other way because everyone knew this is what went down. And these aren't just any women. It doesn't just say a group of women. It says their names. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Mark lists their names. He lists it right before that, too, in the paragraph ahead. He is mentioning these people's names because he wants you to know that they are alive when he's writing this. They are around. In the same way, when uh, a couple chapters ago, it tells us that Simon carried the cross and he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who are Alexander and Rufus? They're, they're, not, in, they're not anybody to us, but to this community... To the first people who got this gospel, they knew who they were. This is a living footnote. This is Mark saying, don't believe me, go ask them. In the same way, you know, Paul, this is what he's saying in Acts. When he says to, to Festus, I am convinced these things didn't happen in a corner. Read the other gospels. Read the book of Acts. You'll see more than 500 people claimed to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. The claim is incredible. It's difficult to believe, but the claim is there are real people. And you can go ask them. They saw it firsthand, and they will tell you about it. The claim is incredible, but the claim is reliable. And I'll just mention one more thing. To me, the, the most persuasive argument... Maybe not to you, but to me, the most persuasive argument is, is simply the argument of history. At the time of Jesus, there were other revolutionary leaders. There were other great leaders who made amazing claims and died. And when they died, either one of two things happened. They either picked a new leader, and they started following that leader, or slowly, eventually the movement fizzled out. But of course, that's not what happened with the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus grew exponentially after his death. There is no historical parallel to that. Do you realize that? And even the most secular and and unpersuaded scholars, they, they agree that whatever the explanation is for that growth, within a very short period of time, after Jesus' death, his followers proclaimed that he was not dead, but in fact that he was the resurrected Son of God. That means there are no other historical records that exist that suggest that early on the followers of Jesus were saying, oh, he was just a great teacher. He was a noble martyr that we can learn a lot from. No, his followers from the earliest moments were convinced that this was the resurrected Son of God. They were unflinchingly committed to telling that message. They were willing to be tortured 
and imprisoned and killed without recanting their story. I saw somewhere uh, this week, somebody was sharing the, the testimony of someone who had been involved in Richard Nixon's administration and had converted to Christianity. And he said, the thing that persuaded him of the truth of this was the faithfulness of those men. He said, because he was around for Watergate and he got to see what happened to the most powerful men in the world when they were asked to hold on to a lie. They couldn't keep it for three weeks. To him, he sees these 12 men who cling to this message of Christ all the way until their death. And he says it would never happen unless it were true. Now, I understand that you have objections. I get it. People don't rise from the dead. That doesn't happen. But if it ever did happen, isn't this exactly how you think it would go? The world never forgetting about it. Forever split by it. Always debating it. But here's the facts. The body was gone. The documents are reliable. And the history is undeniable. A smart person like you can believe this. And I would even say, if you don't believe this, I hope you'll be honest enough with yourself to at least come up with equally good reasons not to believe it. I think this is exactly what took place. So, what does it mean? The fact of the resurrection is something that we all need to come to a conclusion about. And over the centuries, millions of people have. Millions of skeptics, millions of brilliant men and women have looked at the evidence and they have been persuaded that this is an event that actually took place. But the fact of the empty tomb, the fact of the risen Christ, only matters because of what it means. The resurrection simply means that everything and everyone in Christ will rise. The resurrection means that everyone in Christ and everything will rise. The gospel message is a message of the total renewal of all of creation, the complete triumph of good over evil. The gospel is the declaration that on the cross, Christ defeated death. He defeated death, and everyone who looks to him for salvation is going to follow him into that victory. That means that the gospel, it answers for us one of those nagging questions that we're always thinking about. That if the world has always been the way it is, if the world has always been the way it is, why does it feel so wrong? If the world has always been about the survival of the fittest, why do we long for equality? 
If the world has only known war and violence and hostility, why do we long for peace? If the war has only known division and racism and segregation, why do we long for unity? If it's only known poverty and scarcity and hunger, why are we hoping for abundance for all? If the world has only known death, why does it still feel wrong when someone, even in their 90s, dies? If the world has only known death, why are we always longing for eternal life? Well, Scripture tells us that we long for that because that's what we were made for. We were made to be with to know, to worship, and to live fully satisfied in the presence of an eternal and everlasting God. But we've gone our own way. We've chosen something else. We have sinned, and we've ruined everything. But here, the gospel says... The resurrection says that all those longings that you have, those aren't just foolish dreams. Those aren't just stupid ideals, but they are actually signposts pointing you to Jesus Christ. They are pointing us to Jesus, who on the cross defeated your sin and has opened up that door once again to life in the presence of God. The resurrection, it is the answer to our deepest longings. It's telling us that one day, you're right. The world isn't going to be this way anymore. One day, Christ, who Paul says what? Is the firstborn from the dead. One day, everybody's going to follow him. Let me put it this way. We're all going into the tomb someday. Right? Every one of us. We don't know when it's going to happen, but every single one of us, we are going into the tomb. But if you are in Christ, because He rose, you rise. Because He came out of death, you come out of death. His resurrection is the proof that all of creation is headed for that kind of redemption. That you're right. This world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And your hope has a purpose. One day all of God's people are going to be redeemed. But you know, the resurrection is even better than that. Because it's showing us that, that not only are our longings going to be fulfilled in some distant day way far off, but even now, God's redemptive resurrection power is breaking in. It tells us that the power of God has already broken into history. And it's already active in the lives of those who believe. If you are in Christ, Paul says this, Romans 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You hear that? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That means 
that even today, little mini versions of the resurrection are happening. They're happening every day. They're happening all over. Every day, God is taking men and women who are far from him. Men and women who are dead in their trespasses, who are hopeless, who are despairing. And he is putting his spirit into them and making them alive again. It means not only is Jesus going to return one day to make all things right, not only is he going to return one day and put an end to racism, but today he is taking racists and making them into men and women who find their hope in the day when every tongue and tribe and nation worship together before the throne. It means not only one day will Jesus come and wipe out poverty, but today... He is taking the poor and he is making them rich by giving them an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. The resurrection, it means not only a hope for the future, but power for today because it means that the chains of sin and bondage have been broken. Amen. That's why it's so important here in, in Mark that when, when the angel speaks... He says, go and tell the disciples and who? Did you hear it? Verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, if you remember, Peter, he is the guy who just denied Jesus enthusiastically three times. Said, I don't even know him. The apostles, the guys who abandoned him and left him to be murdered and killed. But in that moment... God was working to give them new life. In that moment, God was taking those failures and those cowards and those traitors. And he was turning them into men who would turn the world upside down as they proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And can I tell you, this isn't just something you read about. This is something that, that I can testify to you. I have seen this firsthand. Have you seen it? I have seen God working this way firsthand. I have seen God take a man who was powerless over his addiction, who was trapped and enslaved, and give him freedom. Make him a new man. I have seen God take a marriage that was by all worldly assessments, dead, hopeless, full of anger and hostility, void of trust, and turn it into something beautiful. Turn it into a testament of Christ's love for his church that all the world could see. I have seen God take a rich man who was hoarding his money and his wealth and Convince him to give it all away. Because he found something of far greater worth in Jesus Christ. I have known a woman who went from man to man. From relationship to relationship in search of meaning and validation and love. And I have seen her turned into a strong and confident and independent woman. Who knows that God's love is more satisfying than the love of any human being. If you're in Christ, I know that you've seen those things too. 
If so, you can just say amen. The resurrection, it means new life. It means you're not crazy to think this world is all wrong. The resurrection, it means renewal. It means freedom. It means forgiveness. It means redemption. And not just some distant day way far off, but right now. Hallelujah. That's what the resurrection means. So what do we do about it? How are we supposed to respond to this proclamation that Christ is risen? That he was not in the tomb? That this means new life for the world? What do we do? Well, I think we see it right here at the end of our text. It says in verse 7 that the angel said, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And these women, it says, they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's so weird, right? I can't get over it. I've, I've thought about it all week. It's so strange that this story ends with them being afraid and telling no one. Now we have a big lunch after the service today. I hope you'll stick around. If you want to hear all my thoughts on this, I've read lots of pages. I'll be happy to share it. But, but for right now, I just want you to see one thing in that ending. The reality of God is terrifying. No matter where you go in the Bible... When people encounter God, when they encounter His holiness, they are afraid. In Revelation, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, when he sees the resurrected Jesus in all His glory, he's afraid. Here, these women, they see an angel, they're afraid. Why? Well, because God is real. God is powerful. And most of all, God is holy. And when you and I stand in the presence of a holy God, we will always become painfully aware of the fact that we are not. That we are not holy. That we are unclean. That our thoughts and our actions sinful. That we do not belong in the presence of holiness. And what Mark has shown us here in this book, in the last couple of pages of his gospel, is he has shown us that Jesus got what we deserved. That the holy, sinless, righteous, perfect, eternal Son of God, He was the one cast out of God's presence when we were supposed to be. That He was destroyed. That He was the one who got swallowed up by death. He got our punishment. But when death came for the Son of God, when the world was oh and billions upon billions, 
death lost. Now, when you realize this, when you realize this is true, when you realize that this is what your sin, in fact, requires, that it requires nothing less than death, nothing less than the substitutionary death of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, well, that's a little scary. That's shocking. That kind of truth is the truth that will cut you all the way down to your heart. If you get a chance to read through the gospel, if you get a chance to read through the book of Acts, you'll see that the first time Peter preaches this message to a large crowd, that's the response he gets. It says that the people hear who Jesus was and what he has done and they are cut to the heart and they cry out, what are we going to do? Brothers, what shall we do? And do you remember what he says? He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. So what do we do about this? What do we do about that message? Well, the same thing. The only thing we can do, it's repent and be baptized. It's repent. Whether it's your first time hearing this message or whether this is the truth that defines all of your life, the only response you can make to the risen Jesus is to be fearful of the reality of God's holiness and to repent and believe. To repent. Repent of your hopelessness in the face of your sin. If you're a Christian, you, you need to repent of your despair when you see this broken world filled with sin, of your feeling that you can never overcome the temptation that surrounds you. You need to repent of living in the deadness of your sin, even though you have been made alive in Christ. You need to repent and let the power of God who raised him from the dead give you new life. And if you're not a Christian, if you have, have never placed your faith in Christ, I just want to say to you, if the thought of this scares you, if you see the fears of those women and you can, you can relate, if you're thinking, smart people can't believe this, I can see that maybe it's plausible, but I can't, I can't believe this. I can't do this? What would it mean for me? What would it mean for my relationships? What would it mean for the rest of my life? If you're feeling those fears right now, I just want to tell you that although this chapter ends with that verse, this story does not end in fear. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that those women, they continued in their fear until they met the risen Christ. And then when they met him, his first words, the first words out of his mouth was, do not fear. I want to tell you, they found what you will find. Whatever it might cost you to turn to Jesus, once you meet him, you will never be lacking again. Once you meet him, those fears will go away because the message of this text, the message for us today is that all who are in him will rise. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that it, it, it teaches us not just about truths to know, but about power to experience. And Lord, I pray today that as we hear it, we wouldn't let it stay at our, our, in our brains, but that it would sink down to our hearts. That your spirit would, would, would come alive in us and that it would awake sleeping souls. God, that you would convict us of our sin and that you would lead us to repentance and faith and new life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.